Lead Time is a podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective, hosted by Tim Allman and Jack Kalliberg. Lead Time taps into biblical wisdom for practical solutions to today's burning issues. Each podcast confronts real-time struggles facing the local church in a post-Christian culture. Step into the action with the ULC at uniteleadership.org. This is Lead Time. Welcome to Lead Time. Tim Allman here with Jack Kalberg, and it's been a fantastic Christmas break, Jack. I am feeling yeah. uh, ready to rock into 2023. What's getting you most excited there, Jack, as we head into 2023? You know, uh, the new year is always a time for renewal. It's like a time for uh, sort of a refreshed review review of what, you know, what are the big goals that you want to tackle for the year. And I think that's kind of a view that everybody has going into the new year. Uh, big excitement at the Christ, uh, you know, at Christ Greenfield is the idea that can we get started with our building project that's coming up, building a brand new gym. Yes, and so can. a lot of our effort and the local campus here at Gilbert is all about that. Can we get this thing, get yeah. uh, breaking ground here in the next uh, few days, couple of weeks? Uh, just yeah, trying I, to- I actually love, yeah, I love the new year, man. Yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's an opportunity for Fresh resolve, um, mm-hmm. a, a reset, and human exactly. growth is is fantastic. People desiring to improve, to mm-hmm. learn, and that's exactly why you're here today on Lead Time, listener. We have we have Gary Brooks, Pastor Gary Brooks, who is a part of the Christ Greenfield family at our East Mesa campus, also serving some here at the Gilbert campus, but. Uh, Pastor Gary has 33 years in ministry and pastoral leadership in uh, three different parishes, as well as uh, intentional vacancy ministries here in in the Valley of Phoenix, as well as 23 years of military experience uh, attaining senior leadership responsibilities as a military chaplain. Um, so, Gary, thanks so much for for hanging out with us today. How you doing, brother? Doing fine, gentlemen. How are you? Yeah, this is going to be great. So, let's kick it off uh, talking about talking about your military chaplaincy. I, this is the first, as I was just reflecting before the podcast, the first opportunity I've had to learn from someone who is that extensive as a military chaplain. And tell the story about how you went into chaplaincy, Gary. I had an early experience in the military with seven years as, uh, rather six years as an enlisted service. And that was just enough to teach me. I didn't want anything to do with the military for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But um, the influence of a uh, fellow uh, pastor, we became good friends in seminary. He kind of was ahead of me in the Lord's call to him to into military chapels. And it was through his stories, his uh, ministry experiences that I began to see there was ministry in the military, and I really was beginning to feel a calling to that. I entered the uh, Army chaplaincy uh, in the Guard for one year, and my first summer camp, which was the seventh in life, but first as a chaplain, told me that was the ministry. Mm-hmm. The way to connect with people, and so with that, I was uh, led um, through our then it's a normal process of interviews, endorsement. The Air Force accepted me, and by 1985, I was on active duty as a military chaplain. Hmm. That's awesome. 
Um, what was the biggest difference in being a military chaplain from being a local parish pastor, Gary? Well, the first difference I experienced was I didn't have the normal surroundings, and I realized how much we as pastors depend upon those familiar surroundings in the congregation, relationships with our lay leadership, the the uh, structure of the liturgy, and uh, those experiences that uh, aren't there in the military. And then you, you have to really ask yourself, who am I, what am I as a pastor in the military? And I had to rely on what I took with me that didn't change, and that is commitment to the gospel, commitment to caring for people, dealing with people one-on-one, but learning to be a representative of God in large groups, particularly in secular groups. So those were that was kind of the, the framework of those first experiences of what was profoundly different. Yeah, that that's wonderful. Go ahead, Jack. Yeah, I was I was going to ask um, what what would you consider to be um, challenge a, a unique challenge to chaplaincy that maybe is not normally seen in, in a regular uh, pastoral environment? What, what would you say is kind of more unique in that situation? Well, one uniqueness is you have many more people coming to you for personal counseling. Yeah. The chaplain has the image in the military of being the person to go to with your personal problems. And you would hope it would that would be the same in the parish, but in the parish, people look more as the pastor of the representative of God and maybe the guy I don't want to show my sins to. So that's one mm-hmm. that is significant. The other is uh, the um, just the experience of speaking to a large multi-faith or no-faith audience and speak with integrity to them, to your faith, but without using that as a time of evangelism that rams something down their throat. And doing that well really gives you credibility for the other times when they need somebody to talk about faith or life issues, and then they say, this is the guy I can trust, and I'll go to him. So there's a lot of counseling responsibilities that go above and beyond what we might call regular pastoral work. Do they do, they do anything to prepare? Do they have like a special chaplain school that they send you to? There is a, about a two-month chaplain school to kind of orient you to delivering ministry in a military environment. They do not try to teach you theology. The churches do, the church that endorses you, and they respect that. That's the respected division between church and state. But uh, there is a lot, there is a significant uh, orientation to the military environment so that uh, Put it most simply, uh, at the basic level, they say, teach you how to walk across the base without getting into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and who to salute and all. So you, so in a chaplaincy role, you still had to follow military regulations, which means that you had a rank and you had to follow military protocol, right? All of those things were taught to you as a chaplain, right? Yes. And you had to learn military customs and courtesies, the culture of the military. Mm-hmm. You had to learn mm-hmm. that and how to function. Because if you couldn't function as a viable part of their culture, they wouldn't respect you as a minister of the gospel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Gary, Gary I'm, I'm super curious about this. You know, I'm, I'm a veteran as well. Uh, served uh, 20, 22 years in the uh, both well, Army and uh, National Guard, and I had some fantastic experiences with chaplains. And so this is a, a really fascinating topic. I'd like to hear a little bit, what was maybe some of the more unique or unusual uh, opportunities that you had to do ministry? I, I know I can, I can have memories of doing stuff like that on field exercises, in the woods, in tents. What, what, would, what would be some of those most memorable examples for you? There are several. Uh, some are the environments that you're in, you know, in the Air Force, literally conducting worship or Bible studies under the wing of an airplane out in the desert um, and, uh, overnight with the troops in camps, um, walking up to a commander's tent and uh, he starts kicking the beer cans over so the chaplain will see the beer cans laying on the floor. And <laughs> Um, on a more serious note, um, and I'll share this to show you the unique opportunities the chaplain has. A chaplain is known as the one person who can give you confidentiality for any conversation that you have. And, that, and that's more true in the Air Force than in the other services. Hmm. And uh, one day I was sitting in my office and uh, Normally, I had a, a duty chaplain uh, who would handle the walk-in crises, but he was tied up. So my secretary came in and said, got this young man out here that's really troubled. I uh, accepted a meeting with him, and we sat down and talked. And his first words were, I come here to kill my wife and uh, her lover. Mm-hmm. But he, 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 he knew he couldn't get into their workplace at that moment. He was driving around. He was obviously tormented over it, torn, and he knew he could sit down and talk to a chaplain, and that gave me an hour or so to talk him out of that plan and to convince him to go back home to St. Louis. And um, that was the day two murders didn't happen on base. Hmm. Wow. Wow, Gary. Um, so, so amazing. And Thank you again for your service, and I've said that to you, Jack, as as well. Um, Getting to bring the gospel to very, very intense situations and do it with respect and and dignity and love for all people, um, that's something that is is so, so profound in you, Gary. So you handed out a book, Gary, called A Letter to the Christian Church by Eric Metaxas that takes a look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life and uh, really is a clarion call to the American church to to recognize how we may be falling into some of the same tendencies as uh, the German Lutheran state church back in the 1930s in the midst of, of uh, the Nazi Hitler's Nazi Germany era. And uh, I'm just curious, why did you do that? And you handed it out to a whole bunch of us as, as staff. And I actually just finished it today on my bike ride. Uh, a really, really good read. And um, yeah, so what? why did you do that? And what is your greatest fear uh, for the American church? Well, it was recommended to me by my son, but quickly in reading it, and my wife and I were reading it together, and she said, and I agreed, you know, we ought to give this to our pastors to give them a chance to discuss this because Eric calls the church to speak out to the culture, not just to those we serve through sermons and Bible classes within the protected confines, so to speak, of our uh, 
faith gatherings. Eric talks about the spiral of silence that you read. And he said that, you know, his explanation was, and he attributed it to someone else who coined the phrase, but the spiral of silence was when few speak out to the culture about a growing tyranny, the cost to those who do speak becomes quite high. And as the culture sees that cost, few more and more fall silent until the point that whole segments of society or the whole of society itself falls silent and will not speak out against the accepted message of those holding tyranny over. And then finally, you can be at a point where the church has to fall silent. And even the imposition is then placed on what the church is proclaiming, even in its own uh, confines. And uh, then we uh, are silent or unprotected because no one else is going to speak up for us because we didn't speak up for them. We really feel like this is the day. Gary, where the church has to speak out on a number of issues. So we agree. And it was just more of a, hey, let's let's keep doing that. I I could run down a list of things I think that in the culture that the church must be speaking into today, but I'd love to hear your list before I share mine. Well, um, I think Eric framed it, Eric Metaxas framed it well when he said there's a growing religion a godless religion, but there's a new religion developing in our culture, which seeks to define um, sexuality, sexual uh, identity, and a host of other so-called virtues that are related to that, that are all together really an attack on God and will ultimately be attack on his people. And uh, Terms like misinformation, disinformation, hate speech will carry penalties that even uh, legal penalties that um, will be levied against the church in a day that's coming soon if you're not speaking out and um, raising the alarm to people. And it maybe alarm isn't the best term, but raising people awareness so that they are speaking the truth and seeking the truth. So for people who who think that can happen in America, this is, uh, you know, Eric Metaxas talks about what happened in Germany during World War II. And then we can also just look around the world, right? We can look around what's happening in Canada where there has been suppression of, of worship and suppression of speech. We can look at Europe where there's been suppression of certain forms of worship practice and exercise of religion and even how people respond to issues regarding sexuality and, uh, you know, the issues of um, abortion and pro-life, right? Where uh, even speaking out against it can be considered a hate crime, which is punishable by law. Even posting things on social media can be policed um, and, and can bring with it Uh, legal penalties. While we can find examples already in other countries, we should not ignore what we would first call the extreme stories now, because what seems to be extreme one month 
six months later is becoming the norm. And we're already truly hearing some stories in America that are very disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, what stories most uh, disturb you, Gary? I'm really curious. Well, some of them are related to, well, examples of how prosecution is being levied against those who supposedly are infringing on the safe space of hope of, of abortion clinics. And yet many attacks have occurred on clinics that try to give a pro-life service. And those aren't being investigated at all or very little. That would be one example. Um, in a whole other realm of someone who was videotaping the uh, January 6th break-in of the Capitol, but was not part of the break-in, standing off, has now been spending two years in a legal fight to avoid prosecution of terrorists. To, yeah. He is being prosecuted. It's a very interesting time to be a, a leader in the church because even those two examples that you that you shared, um, people have very diverse, even within the church, perspectives on on that. And I, I have had a number of members, um, you know, cheer on the one hand if we broach maybe a topic around sexuality, and then you know some others on social media who say Christ Greenfield has become a you know. A MAGA congregation, and I can't be a part of that place because it's just the the middle way, which Metaxas talks about, is is no way. And I think we, as the American confessing conservative, <laughs> mission minded church, we must recognize that we are called to steward the Master's talents. They're not ours. So Metaxas spends a fair amount of time at the end talking about the parable of. The talents and how have you come to know who God is? This is from Matthew chapter 25. And the man who was given the five and then the other who was given the two, they knew the kindness and love and care of the master. And therefore, they were willing to risk the master's talents, you know, and multiply them. They did for him what they would do for themselves. Um, and yet at the same time, the, the master, and I've always found this parable to be quite disturbing. The, the one who gets the one talent and buries it, I knew you to be a harsh and a cruel master. So really comes down to how do you, how have you come to know who God is? Is he kind and does he care about truth and people experiencing love and care within the confines of his, of his law? which he gave to us, or have you come to know him as one who is a, against the truth? And then we're kind of establishing our our own truths. And when the truths of, when does life start? Um, are, are people called to be co-creators and caretakers and stewards of, of God's creation? Or are our rights being set under, under care for creation? Though many who are in the secular world would never even talk about this is, as creation, because then that would assume there is a is a creator. So all of these core tenets of who God is and who we are connected to him are under direct assault today. And it is the church's responsibility connected to the word of God. And this is what I kind of say, 
to, to pastors, you don't have to do a lot of work or, or theological gymnastics to get to the point where you can talk about these issues because they are very, very front and, and center. Just law gospel. Just mm-hmm. speak on law. You can right. convict people with the law and then give them give them the, the free gift of grace through the finished work of Christ who never shied away. So let's lean into this, Gary. What stories of Jesus really from, from the gospels say, you know what? Uh, we are called to speak the truth in, in love. What story from Jesus really gives us a framework for how pastors and leaders should speak today, Gary? Well, I'm trying, when you first let in that question, I thought I was going to be responding to where does Jesus really deliver us to God's grace? But um, Answer that question. That's fine. <laughs> I, I, I think of Luke chapter 15. Three stories, and if you read carefully at the beginning of the chapter, it's one parable where Jesus is leading people to rejoice with him as he welcomes sinners. And in chapter 16, the first eight verses, the parable we mistakenly call the uh, parable of stewardship, it's really about um, throwing ourselves unconditionally on God's mercy and the mercy of God. And it's leading people to see God's mercy with pastors being confident to present that gospel gospel of grace and mercy. It has to be accompanied by law that exposes our sins. Otherwise, we never, it's the, the cheap grace that Bonhoeffer wrote about. Grace that uh, really has no meaning. Um, and I think the challenge you and your staff face um, as you get various either compliments or criticisms are stay faithful to God's word that shows us our need for him. That's the law and his answer that shows his grace and invites us to throw ourselves in grace. That's how we keep our mooring. That was the lesson I learned going into the chaplains. Uh, I watched chaplains around me who strove to be approved by off, uh, superior officers, by the troops in the ranks, without staying true to their calling, they lost their way. Mm. And you, you keep, even when you are in a very diverse culture with conflicting opinions, we are called to be ministers of the gospel. And that's we have to stay true to that calling and that ministry. So in lead time, Gary, we've been having a lot of conversations about hopes for a, uh, a united, mission-minded, very conservative, but definitely mission-minded future for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, of which you've been a part and given, given your life and, and heart to. Um, but we have some we have some fears about the trajectory of our church body, and we truly believe that our theology is what the world needs: uh, appropriate law, gospel, biblical, uh, confessional theology is what the world needs. But yet, within the Missouri Synod, there there are these kind of fights still over maybe worship or um, uh, ecclesiastical supervision or. 
just what what is the nature of the church? Ecclesiology is a church mostly for itself, or is it is it for the world? Um, and so we're having a number of these different conversations. And as as a longtime member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, what alarms you about the trajectory of our church body? And any any words of wisdom to unite us in mission again, Gary? Uh, my concerns are that we are increasingly, and I've noticed this for several years, as the Missouri Senate increasingly seeking to protect what we have by circling the wagon rather than leading the wagon train to engage the culture. And uh, that's that's my fear. Uh, I, I've been looking uh, where I could on our LCMS, the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate website, for any indications of engaging the culture with some of the uh, current issues. And uh, the very few I find seems to be uh, approaching those engagements with how are we going to protect the liturgy? How are we going to keep those influences from coming in and, and uh, adulterating the sacrament of the altar of the liturgy uh, rather than uh, really leading people in a dialogue and a discussion of how we can speak to this godless religion that's and influencing and influencing people who are being afflicted by things they don't understand. We need to help people understand the culture they live in and understand God's will and God's grace, how they can respond to it. That's good. I definitely hear in that response um, a more loving, kind, but offensive missional approach, uh, never compromising our theology, or on the other hand, a a more defensive kind of protective and purity oriented uh, approach. And um, yeah, and I hear, I'm going to go deeper in terms of that liturgy. If we, and I've heard, I've heard leaders say this, if we just get the liturgy right, everything else kind of flows, flows from that. Um, what's your response to, to that that statement? Uh, that would be my response. I, I think huh? that would be the typical response of many people because as people, as pastors and leaders who are schooled in the liturgy, I share that love for the liturgy. And I, I think it is just a beautiful conversation with God. But many people do not understand that. Uh, they have not experienced it yet at that level, and there are many other things that are in their in the culture they live in that's not in the terminology addressed in the liturgy, and they need to understand how their culture they live in can be integrated, how it surrounds and is influenced by the culture of worship. We're in the danger of people separating their lives from uh, two spheres. They've got a culture they live in and a culture they worship in, and they try to accommodate both, and they cannot, because one is so diametrically opposed and different and even attacking the culture we live in. That's good. The, the liturgy restories us, right? from our invocation all the way to our sending out with the presence of God. And there must be time in the word. And uh, I think prayer and 
songs that reflect our, our robust theology. And yet a lot of times we end up straining gnats and, and it really gets down to style and preference and things that are already offer. Uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregations, whether they have contemporary or, or just uh, traditional, their liturgy through the hour, hour 15, whatever, is, is intact uh, from invocation to bed. There may be some choices they make uh, during the service. Maybe it's a more extemporaneous rather than out of page five or 15 or what, whatever um, within the Lutheran, uh, Lutheran hymnal that we have today that they use. But they may make some respective choices, but we are still very, very liturgical top to bottom within our church body. So fighting over that rather than, rather than having good conversation about, say, discipleship um, and leadership development and the, the character of Christ and a heart for those who do not know Jesus and trying to bring light to dark places in the midst of an ever-increasingly secular culture. This is what we must be talking way more about. And then, Jack, and I'll get to you here, and then respecting one another that the way we do that, like Jesus, the the way of Jesus as a Jew in, in the first century was different. There were nuances to his discipleship than there are to ours uh, today. But the truth of the story is the same from creation to recreation. And we are in that age of the church where people must be mobilized uh, for love and good deeds to, to bring light to dark places. Jack, response to that. Yeah, I, you know, when I think about, you said earlier that today, today's day and age needs our theology more than ever. And when I think about Luther's teaching on faith, this is very biblical. It is transformative. It transforms the person. When a person has faith, you, it is not, there is going to be courage. There's going to be love. There's going to be peace, joy, and passion. All of those things need to exist with faith. And so if all of those things are there, true courage, true passion, true joy, true, true hope, then what, what on earth would cause you to want to circle the wagons, right? You should be storming the gates, not circling the wagons, not hunkering down because you have everything. You don't have to fear. Yes, there will be slings and arrows that come from speaking into a culture, preaching the, the law to a society that's lawless. There's going to anger some people. But you have everything in faith. God has promised you everything. You are an immortal being, right? You, you're, if the, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that you get persecuted and you end up like Bonhoeffer, hung like Bonhoeffer. But Bonhoeffer steps out of the grave tomorrow, the day after. He has everything in Christ. So what is there to fear? Give your life away. Amen. Our faith should lead us to, to robust action. Amen. So... Uh, last question here, Gary. This has been a lot of fun. You've been a part of the Christ Greenfield family now for a few years. Um, and thank you for your faithful service to the wider church. And lead time is here not to talk about Christ Greenfield or anything like that. Every church is is unique. And I pray every church is going on mission to reach their respective culture. But you've said that Christ Greenfield is unlike uh, any other church you've been a part of. Um, you could be kind here, but uh, maybe not. Maybe be truthful as well. But what did you what did you mean by that? Yeah. Well, there was a kind context entirely to that uh, time I've said that to you, and that is I've just been astounded by the sincerity and how the comprehensive approach you and your staff have applied to raising up leaders, to discipling 
um, people who are part of the Christ Greenfield um, family, and um, just just the, the first indicator of that is the number of pastoral interns and vicars you have um, under training right now and employed in service, in Bible study and, and worship service and various ministries. Just astounding. Thank you, brother. Praise be to God. And we pray that it is a, a model that everything we need is within our respective churches and, and raising up women and men, and many of them serving in bivocational roles in a post-Christian secular era, uh, bringing entrepreneurship to reach as many people as possible with the gospel. The future of the church here in America, especially as we become increasingly secular, um, is is smaller and therefore, we're going to need more and more workers for the harvest as the as we bring it in and more people are, are brought to faith. I'm praying for uh, a revival, many, many baptisms, uh, adults uh, coming, coming to faith, recognizing the times in which we live and saying I, pessimism and cynicism that is rampant today this is not life. Like there is more for me and that the church would say, yes, there is. And that more is in the person and work of, of Jesus, the crucified and, and risen one. Any, any final words for our listeners today, Gary, this has been a lot of fun. Well, I've, I've appreciated the chance going in the conversation. Um, Jack used the uh, metaphor of gates, storming the gates. And it just brought to mind Jesus's assurance that, the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. What a mission statement uh, Amen. that was. Be out there. Be going. Uh, gates are defensive weapons, uh, defensive uh, fortifications. They're not. Hell is not on the offense. The church mm-hmm. is on the offense. And when we're on the offense, God's enemies cannot prevail. They cannot withstand the church's ministry. Amen. You've been listening to Lead Time, a podcast of the Unite Leadership Collective. The ULC consults and brings together cohorts of congregations to build the culture, systems, and structures of intentional discipleship multiplication. To go deeper with us, create a free login on uniteleadership.org for access to exclusive materials and resources. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode.